That was the best moment of the whole thing. Yes, it was. <laughs> it's uh, it's all going to be downhill from here. Go ahead and take your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. My name's Hal Bryan and I'm one of your hosts. I'm senior editor for print and digital content and publications here at EAA. Sitting here with me today on my left, it's... Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director. And uh, joining us uh, via this iPad on the desk and the magic of uh, Skype and the wonders of the internet is uh, is none other than Eric Lindbergh, a uh, a raconteur, tour, a bon vivant, if you will, a uh, and uh, and someone I've been uh, proud and privileged to call a friend for coming up on twenty years now. Eric, welcome to the Green Dot. Thanks, Hal and Tom. It's a it's a pleasure. Well, it's just it's uh, it's fun to have you here. And anytime uh, anytime we have a conversation, whether it's in an interview or uh, or just personally. Um, I've always learned something, and I always come away uh, come away jazzed about the future. So, uh, there's the bar. So all you have to do is just <laughs> jazz everybody that's listening. That's that's the, the bare minimum. But anyway, let's let's uh, help uh, the people out there listening get to know you a little bit. Um, the uh, you know I normally kick these things off asking sort of how did you sort of first get started flying, being involved in aviation, and that's that that question takes a little bit of a different tack with you because of course. Uh, there is nobody in aviation who doesn't know your last name and doesn't know of your grandfather, Charles A. Lindbergh, and uh, his history-making, his world-changing flight uh, back in May of 1927 from New York to Paris. So I think some people uh, might say, well, you know, how couldn't you have gotten involved in aviation because, you know, you're a, a Lindbergh. It must be it must be sort of laser etched into your DNA. But that, that wasn't quite the case with you at the beginning, was it? Yeah, Hal, I think, you know, it's complicated. That's the right way to put it. Um, obviously, my my grandfather and indeed my grandmother, who was also a, a, an accomplished pilot, were perhaps the most famous people on the planet for about 10 years. And um, it cost them tremendously. It cost them their, their ability to move, uh, you know, around privately. They l- lost their firstborn son, Charles Jr., in a terrible kidnapping called the crime of the century. And, and, and more or less, you know, ended up fleeing the country to try to find a safer place to live. And um, so that you know, just intensity that, um, of that legacy sort of caused my grandparents to really withdraw from public life in the second half of their lives. And then my, my, my dad's generation really also did not want to step out into the public eye because it just represented so much trauma, drama, and difficulty and, um, and so I think as it reached down to my generation, we all just sort of knew to shy away from it. I, I jokingly call it Lindberghophobia. Um, <laughs> Lindberghs are allergic to Lindbergh stuff. Um, that's a generality. But but it, for me, the journey into aviation was sort of this, you know, hold that legacy at bay and try to live a normal life. Uh, but when I was... Uh, 21 or so a friend of mine said hey you want to go for a flight i just took a demo flight at my local airport and um it was really cool and i kind of i put him off and but he kept bugging me so finally i gave in i was like all right what do i do and i went and took a you know one of these 29 or 39 dollar demo flights and i liked it i went (laughs) oh this is cool and so i i went on and got my private license and during that process, I realized maybe I should do this for a living. I could do what my flight instructor's doing. And so I went on and got my, um, you know, commercial certificate, flight instructor ratings and instrument ratings. And, um, and that's how I sort of dove deep into, into aviation. That's interesting that um, you kind of came to aviation in much the same way that at least I did. And a, and a lot of pilots did just taking an intro flight or, or fly, going flying with a friend. 
uh, I, I guess, I don't know, with, with, uh, with your family history, uh, maybe some people would assume that, you know, you just kind of came out of the womb as a private pilot. Right. You were, you were issued, uh, you know, a, a, a Ryan airplane <laughs> right. of some kind. Yeah. And, and, uh, and here you go. But, but very much uh, not the case. I, I, as a quick aside, uh, Eric, um, you were pretty young uh, when your grandfather passed away. But uh, as I remember, you, you, you did spend at least a little bit of time with him. Yeah, you know, I was uh, I was nine when he died in uh, 1974, and and so I knew him as a kid, and he would come to visit, or we would visit uh, them and other family in Hawaii, um, and it, yeah, he was he was wonderful, I think, especially to kids. You know, kids have um, are sort of very authentic. It's, What's right in front of them is is important. And, um, you know, I, I've heard from a lot of adults who met him and thought he was a hard man or difficult or even really disappointing. Um, one guy told me he waited in line for a long time to get an autograph and <laughs> grandfather said no. You know, I get both perspectives because if he did signed autographs he would have done nothing but sign autographs all day long every function etc so he just said no I'm not going to do that but it it devastated this guy and he, of course he had to tell me about it 50 years later how devastating it was <laughs> so i you know we've all got our lives and our our um our own story to live through so it's good to have empathy you know i think for all sides of the story, sure. whatever it is. Well, it's uh, it's fascinating to me, not to, to dwell on it too much, but uh, I, I've been with you at events where you've spoken and things like this, and I, I'm always, uh, you know, it, it, it means something to me to see people sort of queuing up to, you know, thank you for your presentation and everything else, but they also want to sort of thank your grandfather through you. And uh, um, I, I think that's a, that's a powerful thing, and I think it's re- remarkable that you've, you, you, and we'll get to this, I think, in a, in a little while, but it's remarkable how you found your way to, to sort of accept that very graciously. But then interesting, too, that uh, here's, this, here's this poor guy who wanted an autograph and, you know, was probably just sort of sitting there in good faith waiting. And, you know, 50 years later, he got to, he got to give you a piece of his mind. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it comes with the legacy. And, and this is sure. the part, I think, that, that many Lindberghs in the family are, are allergic to, and that is this attention that comes to you that you have no relationship to. It, right. it, in fact, it's very far from your life. And it, and, and that was the barrier for me to overcome, to become a pilot. It was, it was, Oh, I have to, you know, I have to meet all these people who like Admiral Vice Grip who crunches on your hand and doesn't let go and then leans in too close and you could tell he's been eating sardines and he tells you how he named his his five goldfish after Charles or some other story that's really meaningful to him and you're like uh how do I deal with this and I think for me if I just reached a point where the it, it's all about that person in that moment and, and what it is to them. And, and the best thing I can do is listen and have empathy and, and, and really try to just be there for them. Right. It, it's not about me so much. And that really right. helped me to deal with those situations. And I often see politicians or famous people at a party or whatever, a, a gala and, you know, I kind of don't want to bother them just for that reason. <laughs> um, but it 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 is the burden that comes with fame. And and I don't you know want to start up the violin or cry or anything because it's an amazing gift also. And it's just whether or not you can really accept that gift and choose to live that way, whether or not you can do it. And I think you know, being around people at AirVenture, for example, uh, Sean Tucker, such a great, you know, air show performer and really a star. And yet he is so humble and he listens closely and he, he, he looks you in the eye and he's just there with you. And and people like that kind of shine the way for me to, to realize, oh, this is not about me. It's about 
people. And if you can connect with them, that's a huge gift and it'll give back to you in the long run. So there's, there's a little bit, it's not easy and it's amazing. Well, and as, as you have deduced, it's a, it's a valuable thing uh, that you're providing for people when people want to connect with uh, your grandparents legacy and you know, you, you get to be that, uh, you get to be that lightning rod, that, uh, that, yeah. con- that conduit back. So <laughs> a lightning rod is a good, is a sometimes, good it's, yeah. sometimes it's really weird. Right. Sometimes you come <laughs> away a little fried and, and, uh, and, and it is incredibly like emotionally draining. Sure. So you come back just thrashed and, and if you have, you know, like my creaky joints, um, you, you come back sore and tired also because you've been standing or, or, or if you're lucky, you get a chair and you could sit and, 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 and work it. Cause I, I, I like people. And so it's, it's not a huge stretch for me, but it is incredibly taxing. Of course. So coming back to, to learning to fly for a second, what was that like? Um, you know, kind of carrying on your grandparents legacy, but as you know, a kind of a rookie pilot, just like the rest of us and, was there any any kind of a I don't know who your instructor was, but any kind of an interesting dynamic with your uh, with your instructor and your and your flight training over that? Haha. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, his name was Rick Kuhn. Uh, I have no idea where he is now, but um, he, I liked him. He was he was a you know a nice guy. I know that because he signed my shirt when he cut it off when I soloed um, on Halloween night. Um, it. it I didn't mention my my relation to Charles and Anne, and and that's been sort of typical throughout my at least flight training um, was that I never would mention it. If people asked, I would tell them, but people didn't ask in those days. Um, I think that legacy the had sort of faded enough that people generally didn't ask, and that was the case during you know, when I got my commercial and instrument rating and so forth, nobody really knew until partway through my, my roommate found out. And, and that I think, you know, one of the reasons why I didn't volunteer that or, and don't volunteer that up front is because people then paint a picture in their head and it colors the way that you're treated. And, and the case in point that I'll mention is when I got my flight instructor rating, I went to do my check ride with the feds in uh, Colorado Springs, I think. So I flew an RG down, a retractable gear aircraft, down to Colorado Springs, took the written test, and then got in the plane and did the practical test. And it was difficult. He pulled the gear um, uh, uh, circuit breaker, and so I had, you know... I was sweating bullets right off the bat because something was wrong. I didn't know what was going on. I'm taking off and the gear won't go. And he's telling me all these instructions, trying to distract me from something that I knew was wrong, but I couldn't tell. Um, and I finally worked through it and realized that it was the gear and I went through everything and couldn't find what was wrong. And then I circuit breaker, I got it. Boom. Okay. And I said, now I can do the other tasks that you want me to do. You know, great way to start off a check ride. Right. And anyway, I passed and we got down on the, the, the runway and parked again. And, and he was writing up my temporary certificate and he asked me to spell my name and he said, Oh, any relation to Charles and Ann? Um, and I said, yeah, they're my, my grandparents. And he said, Oh, wow. You know, if you'd have told me that up front, I wouldn't have made you fly. and 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 think about that for a second because because if if he didn't make me fly and he just signed my ticket i would never know if i was good enough or not right and if and if he you know or if he did know and went the other way and made it harder on me then it would be worse um (laughs) so 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 and I think I talked to John and Martha King, you know, the King Schools um, pilots who are dear friends and have served on the Lindbergh Foundation board. Um, John and Martha said, yeah, try being us. So they're <laughs> famous for all these training videos. And when they go for a check ride, 
they end up having like these eight hour long check rides where they're trying to get them on. They're trying to just nail them on every question they can imagine. <laughs> so it, it, it's a unique perspective. Um, but there's a little story to. <laughs> That's amazing. Imagine you're just not uh, not flying on the check ride at all. Uh, next time I have a check ride, if I say that my friend is uh, Charles and Anne's <laughs> grandson, I wonder if that gets me a break of any kind. It, it might. It, it might produce the opposite effect. It, it just might. I'll, <laughs> I'll give it a shot and let you know. Now, uh, get ready for a terrible segue, but a few minutes ago, you made reference to creaky joints. And uh, I want to jump back to when uh, when you were younger for a bit, because uh, uh, you were uh, in high school, and, and as a teenager, you were extremely active. You were, if I recall, a championship gymnast. And yeah. uh, and then you faced some uh, you faced a real physical challenge and if you wouldn't mind step us through uh, how that uh, played out. Sure. Well, you know, I I grew up um, extremely physical, always jumping off of the highest thing I could find and rolling and uh, climbing. You know, everyone would climb ropes in elementary school, and I would climb hand over hand and jump out of trees into the water and boxes full of water ski trophies and uh, state champion gymnast, as you mentioned. So I, my whole sense of self was physical. And I, it, when I graduated high school, I remember thinking that if I was ever, you know, in a job, stuck behind a desk pushing a pencil, because we didn't have computers in those days, I would kill myself. I couldn't live with that. And and what actually happened when I turned 21, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, which I didn't really know what that meant, but it, it this is a inflammation that happens in your joints, just like having a sprained ankle or a sprained knee and it, and it flares or waxes and wanes. It gets worse and it gets better. And by the time I was 30, I really couldn't walk. I had, um, you know, lost all the cartilage in my knees and I was walking with a cane and uh, I didn't have much of a life. I, I really was j mostly just sitting, couldn't hold down a job. And uh, so that physical sense of self died, if you will. And, and uh, that process kind of crushed my spirit. But I got a second chance. And, and I had my knees replaced and some some other hardware installed, some screws. And um, and then I started taking a breakthrough biotechnology drug that that, you know, allowed me to start building myself back up again. And uh, that second chance gave me a shot at really, you know, sort of shedding the parts of my life that didn't make sense or didn't help you know, facilitate my dreams and, and allowed me to really chase them. And that has, you know, I don't know if I'll get a third chance at life. So it kind of, it, it quickens you. And that's allowed me to, you know, do some things that have shifted the, the world a little bit. And that's kind of empowering. Well, and, and now I see you all over social media. I think the uh, hashtag is old guys rocking. <laughs> and uh, since you're, uh, I think you're what, three or four years older than me, then yes, I can accept that you're old. Uh, but, uh, but you're all over the place. You're mountain biking and skiing and and uh, and doing all kinds of stuff. In addition, and 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 we're more than thirty years after uh, after that point in your life when uh, when, as you said, you, re you for all intents and purposes couldn't even walk. That's that's absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, you know, it's a. Uh... It's an incredible gift to to have been able to rebuild my strength and and especially to such a high level. I'm 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 actually preparing for a trip to go climb and ski Mount St. Helens, the volcano that blew up here in 1980. <laughs> um, it's it, 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 so to to have double total knee replacements and three five inch screws in my hip and more screws in my foot and, you know, fingers that don't work properly, but to be able to build myself up so that I can, you know, I can do a three hour single track mountain bike ride or climb and ski in the mountains for a week straight. 
um, it at such a high level is, I mean, it's kind of unheard of. One of my, I just connected with the guy that screwed my hip back together, um, the orthopedist, and he said, it is, there is no medical precedent for what you're doing, Eric. And if I said any more, it would be a HIPAA violation. Um, <laughs> so I, I just, I love that because he gets to see people and put them back together again, you know, with screws and hardware. And to realize that, you know, I've got something that um, is, has gotten me to the top of uh, my game again in, in two sports. I can't really hike anymore, but if you put me on wheels or skis, I can, I can go downhill up or downhill all day long. It, 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 it makes me, it motivates me and it makes me a little bit nervous or manic in celebrating it because I know it's temporary and I know it's going to erode at some point because <laughs> I'm getting old but but I'm still rocking it. That's fantastic. Yeah, that is awesome. So maybe uh, kind of at the intersection of the flying part and uh, maybe a little bit of the physical activity part, um, there's something that all three of us have in common here uh, at this table and on the phone here, and that is that we've all flown uh, NX211. We've all flown EAA's uh, replica of the Spirit of St. Louis. That makes us a pretty elite group of people, you know. <laughs> it is. I'm, yeah. I'm feeling very elite right now. <laughs> and for those of you listening, there are several uh, replicas of the Spirit of St. Louis out there, but EAA actually has the uh, the, the registration number. So if you fly our replica, and it is a two-seater, uh, you actually get to log NX211 in your logbook, uh, which is uh, for – and Eric, I, I guess I could count myself among those that uh, – you know, your, uh, your grandfather, partially your grandfather and partially Jimmy Stewart through the, uh, through the movie, um, inspired when I was very young. I, we still have a, uh, as yet unbuilt, uh, the Gillows, um, uh, Spirit of St. Louis model that my dad and I, uh, were hoping to build someday. Um, but anyway, um, tell us a little bit about how you felt flying that airplane. Oh, you know, it, it was early on in my, air venture career. So probably 20 years ago, I think I first went in 1996, 1997, possibly. So it might've been 97 or 98 when I, I, uh, Vern Jobst took me up in the spirit. Um, and there was a couple of things, you know, it's very foreign cause I grew up flying, you know, tricycle gear aircraft, and teaching. So I had a lot of experience, but not at all in tail draggers, especially old tail draggers, especially old tail draggers where you really can't see out the front. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and I know they say, or grandfather said, you know, you can't see over the front anyway, when you're taxiing. And when you're in the air, there was no traffic at, at that time in the, in the, you know, late 1920s. So you didn't need to see out the front. You just look out the side because you want to look at the ground. Right. But what what was interesting to me was um, flying with Vern and that's a unique spirit because there's it's 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 set up as a two seater. So you can fly with a passenger. It, it, It was that it was easy to fly. I could fly it. I just couldn't fly it straight. And or level. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, I was starting to get a little puzzled when you said easy to fly, but that yes, that makes much more sense. It, it, yeah, it, easy enough. I mean, it it's, it, it it responds to your controls, et cetera. But right. but boy, if you try and hold it straight or level, it was tough. Yeah, it's. I found it does what you you tell it to do, but you just have to constantly be telling it what to do. Like yeah, just, just all the time. Well, it tells you it, it does what you tell it to do, but then it will keep doing that until you tell it to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, I, I, he he really designed it with that sort of in, inherent instability. You know, he he put zero dihedral in the wing, mm-hmm. and the dihedral is what allows the center of gravity to sort of tend to return back to center. So it'll it'll kind of return to stability, but without dihedral. Um, it just always wants to wander. And, and he did that as a, I, I like to say, as a primitive autopilot. 
and his rationale was that if it if it uh, if he fell asleep during this long flight, it would bank off and start you know zooming down towards the ground, and he would feel the g forces and hear the noise and wake up. And so there's your primitive autopilot going, oh, wake up, oh yeah, back to straight and level. <laughs> um, so it, 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 I think as a lot of people said, it's 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 a plane that only its mother could love. Um, <laughs> It, although Vern said that my grandmother, Anne Marl Lindbergh, was a, a wonderful pilot and flew it just as smooth and as as well as anybody. That's and, right, because she would have flown our. We've done two replicas over the over the decades. One of them hangs in the museum full time, and then the other one that I believe is the one all three of us have flown was uh, was the later one. Uh, that uh, lives over at Pioneer and then comes back into service. We had it flying again a couple of years ago for the 90th uh, anniversary. Um, but uh, yeah, we've just been we've just been doing some uh, some reading and looking at some old video of uh, film clips, of course, of your grandmother uh, getting to fly it with Vern and how you know what a powerful thing that was and and realizing uh, that. Uh, you know, she'd never flown in the real thing, of course, it being a single seater and hanging in the, the rafters in Washington, D.C. So how powerful that was to, to be able to give her that opportunity and then, of course, to be able to extend it to, to you as well. Yeah. Well, what a great gift. And, and I think um, all of us in the aviation community really owe EAA for keeping the spirit alive. And I, 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 I'm guessing I'm, I'm actually um, <laughs> paraphrasing your tagline or something like that, but it's, but it's absolutely true. And that spirit is evident every year and throughout the year. But, but when you go to air venture, you, you, you feel it, you see it, you taste it, you live it. And it's, it's like nowhere else on, on the planet. Well, as I've seen you do so many times, uh, what can we do other than uh, just try to accept that, uh, that, that compliment graciously, but of course, point out that, uh, you know, we're, we are only the strength of our, of our members and all of us here are members. So, uh, you know, we were members before we started working here and things like that. So I think, um, you know, we can all feel that same way without it, uh, without it seeming too self-congratulatory, but it's, it's sure kind of you to say. <laughs> well, let me to EAA's horn. It's, uh, I, uh, I, I look forward to it every year and, um, I get to meet, my friends and family that I only see once a year at AirVenture. And it's, it's, um, it's truly magic. And I think that's, you know, going back to my flight training, um, it, it, it was the magic that caught me because all of the, you know, the numbers, the dials, the, the, <laughs> the knobs, the whistles, et cetera, that that's all the technical stuff, which is great. And it's doable. But it's the magic of flight. It's looking down and seeing the planet from above, a different perspective, and and being able to move long distances. That captured me, and I think it cap. That's what captures everybody who really gets into it. Absolutely, it absolutely does. And I think um, Hal and, and myself and, and Chris, our, our other uh, our other co-host, um, has has mentioned it many times that. Uh, I think that's what really kind of what, what drew all of us into aviation. A lot of people are enthralled by the technical side, and that's very important too. But, you know, what I always say is that, um, you know, for as long as humans have existed, they've wanted to fly. And how lucky are we to live in a time that we can do it? Yeah, that tiny fraction of a percent of, of human history. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're, certainly, uh, we're certainly lucky. And I, I can't even imagine uh, what the landscape would look like today if uh, if if it weren't for Eric's, uh, Eric's grandparents, if, if his grandfather hadn't made that flight and proven to the world that, uh, that aviation wasn't a novelty, that it was a viable thing and was going to stick around. That it was knows? a practical thing. Yeah. yeah. Who knows yeah. what, uh, what it would look like today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a, that's an interesting point because it, it, you know, I think before he flew across the Atlantic, people who flew in airplanes were known as barnstormers and daredevils and flying fools. And after he flew across the Atlantic, people who flew in airplanes were called pilots and passengers. And the, and the world just all of a sudden realized that aviation could be used for commercial purposes. And, and all, all of a sudden it just exploded. 
the number of pilots, um, you know, increased, the number of airplanes increased, and, and the number of businesses um, really, it just rapidly um, changed the way we moved around the planet. Yeah, what's interesting is that the transatlantic flight, um, yeah, it wasn't the first flight across the Atlantic. It wasn't even first the first nonstop flight across the Atlantic, but it connected the two two of the most important cities in the world at that time. And I think that's really what captured everybody's imagination. Yeah, and that in his, you know, he was a, a farm boy from Minnesota, and he was he did it solo. Yep. You know, alone after Ninjaser and Koli disappeared. So there was just this high, you know, sort of anxiety about this, the race the, for a prize that Orteg, uh, Raymond Orteg put up a $25,000 prize for a flight between the two cities of New York and Paris. And uh, it, it reached a feverish pitch and many people died trying to win that prize. And there was no, uh, no stipulation about, uh, about, you know, going solo, as you mentioned, uh, Nungusser and, and Coley. There was, if I remember right, there was there was nothing that said it had to be single engine, anything like that at all. Uh, it's, but uh, you know, superficially, your grandfather ob- arguably, you know, did it the hard way. You think, well, we could take a multi-engine airplane and have two people and sleep in shifts and things like this, and and uh, and he said, no, it's 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 me. I trust me. I trust myself, and and I'm going to trust this uh, this right engine to keep running for 33 and a half hours and. <laughs> well, his his rationale at that time was um, based on how often engines failed. Sure. And so he thought, you know, one engine is is uh, half the chance of losing an engine of a of a twin engine. Right. And, right. And if the more engines, the more chance of failure. So uh, it 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 was rationale that was crazy at the time, but it turned out to be very prescient. Yeah, absolutely. Pres- prescient. So while we're still on the uh, on, on the on the transatlantic flight, you recreated that um, on what was was that the seventy fifth anniversary in in O two? Yeah, tell us yeah, about that. that. Oh my gosh! Well, you know, I I had just had my knees replaced in nineteen ninety six and started getting a life again, and I had um, joined this crazy band of um, <laughs> rocketeers, if you will, in the X Prize Foundation. And the the uh, the premise there was that we announced a ten million dollar prize, and that prize would be awarded to the first private manned space program that could, you know, fly up into space, return safely, and do it again within two weeks. And um, we launched that in under the arch in St. Louis in 1996, and it um, it it was it was difficult for many reasons, one of which we didn't actually have the $10 million that we announced we would give away. So there's a little drama involved in that. That's just a simple we... detail, though. I mean, really, it's like, <laughs> you know, step one, announce you're going to give somebody $10 million. Step two, get $10 million. And it's a, yes. it's a very it, straightforward plan. It, it was. <laughs> and in the beginning, in the first couple of years, we raised money hand over fist. It was so exciting and so interesting. We had 20 astronauts and Dan Golden, the head of NASA, and Tom Clancy, um, you know, all these amazing people giving us lots of money and support. But after a couple of years, it it obviously it took nine years for the prize to be won. It, it we we were faced with um, you know going bankrupt or going out of business essentially because we were a nonprofit. And in about the year two thousand. Uh, we had half a guy in the office in St. Louis. Everyone else has moved away and doing other things to make money, to earn money. And I started, I actually started thinking about flying across the Atlantic because I, a, a customer of mine, I, I do woodworking. I've done that for the last 25 years and I occasionally sell things. Um, he asked me if I would build him a Spirit of St. Louis model for his brother to get to him for his birthday. And I said, no, I don't do that kind of work. I do this, you know, really rustic furniture stuff. And he goes, well, you know, my, both my brother and I 
our pilots now because we read your grandfather's book and it inspired us and we're now flying for UPS, you know, flying across the Atlantic. And it would be the best gift I could give to my brother. It'd be, a, you know, something made by you in your rustic style. And I, I said, all right, let me think about it. And I went home to my shop and started, you know, sort of putting the iconic shape of the spirit together and, and, and thinking about it, putting myself in my mind's eye into the cockpit and wondering what it was like, that flight that changed my grandfather's life and, you know, really changed the world. And I began to think, what if I did that flight? And the 75th anniversary is coming up. And long story short, in 2002, I took off from San Diego, flew to St. Louis and then St. Louis to New York and then... Um, you know, New York to Paris, the long flight in a Lancer. Uh, it was a 17-hour flight. And and I did that to, not only to retrace and understand what it was like for him, but also to raise money for the XPRIZE. And 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 it worked. It, it helped us through, uh, you know, this time of really needing to shut the office down and shut the nonprofit down and turn off the prize, if you will. But it helped us raise money and um, media impressions, half a billion media impressions we got from that and a million bucks plus a, another million dollars in kind. And it jump-started us to, to actually awarding the prize um, in Mojave in, in uh, 2004. Now that is... That is really something. And, you know, it. what struck me at the time uh, when you were preparing for that flight and then, of course, following along when you made it was that, even, you know, 75 years on, it was, uh, you know, you had a, an amazing support system. You had the whole mission control set up in St. Louis and you had communications and you had survival gear and you had done the underwater egress training and all <laughs> of these things. But still, that's not trivial. That's not a simple, small thing to do to just hop in uh, in an airplane today and and fly from from New York to Paris. It's it's straightforward to go buy a, an airline ticket and do it on an airliner, and but you, to just get into a single engine, you know, piston and piston powered airplane, um, it was easier. But I I don't think it was seventy five years easier. I would agree with you, Hal. I, I it it was it was technically. You know, feasible. I understood that right away because some guy did it 75 years earlier. Um, <laughs> some guy. Was it but Pangborn? It, was that, uh, is that yeah, who we're talking uh, to? Clyde yeah, Pangborn stranded? Yeah. <laughs> it, but but it, it was technically feasible. Um, for me, part of the reason why I did it was because I realized that from a familial standpoint, a Lindbergh standpoint, it was incredibly difficult and threatening in many ways it was it, it, it threatened my sense of self and my it upset my family members some of whom my aunt joked um, were afraid I wouldn't make it and some of whom she joked would <laughs> she was afraid I would make it <laughs> and and everywhere in between and it, and it I, I realized part way through that I had to do this to free myself from the the the, the burden of being a Lindbergh and the shackles that sort of held me back from reaching my highest potential. So it was cathartic from a personal standpoint. Um, and it was hard because I have, you know, I have rheumatoid arthritis. I had to get a special issuance um, medical certificate and prove that I could, you know, work my joints well enough to fly an airplane and much less fly an airplane for 20 hours. Um, so, so it it was all kinds of hard, and you know it was nothing compared to what my grandfather did in 1927. And 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 as I, you know, as I think about that and 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 reminisce about it, I'm I'm reminded that we're eight years away from the hundredth anniversary of of that flight, and I am now starting to really think about. Well, I know what we did on the 75th anniversary, and we changed the way the world thinks about spaceflight with the XPRIZE Foundation and got Spaceship One hanging in the Air and Space Museum next to the uh, 
Spirit of St. Louis, and, and that empowered us. How do we bring a message like that to the world for the 100th anniversary that will shift the world's perspective and really showcase what aviation can do? And and that's kind of what is consuming me right now. I've, 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 I've been interested in electric flight for a decade, thinking, oh, this would solve some of the primary issues we're facing in general aviation, like, you know, we burn fossil fuels and those emissions, um, it, we make noise and broadcast it over large areas and that, that causes problems. And, and um, you know, we need to make aviation clean and green and make it available to the next generation so that they can have the freedom to fly around that we have today. And, and that sort of informs my vision. And, and so I'm articulating that now so that you, Tom and, and Hal and, and the EAA family can help sort of architect what that hundredth anniversary is is going to look like, and 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 whether it has flying cars or we fly an electric aircraft, a practical electric aircraft from New York to Paris, I'm I'm not really sure. We have eight years to think about it. You guys have any ideas, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you and, know, and, uh, you yeah, know, and where do you, where do you want to be? What do you want to do? How do you want to you know? bring this to the world yeah well let's let's talk about the uh the the work you've been doing with electric aircraft and, and eVTOL um because obviously that's been something there's been quite a bit of buzz around that that mode of transportation that mode of flight for a while i know with my um you know in, in my corner of the world with advocacy uh, there's some um some regulatory work we have to do on that <laughs> end uh yeah so uh so yeah, let's talk about what you're up to right now with uh with with that work well, as I mentioned, getting the Spaceship One hanging in the Air and Space Museum next to the Spirit and the, and the Lockheed Sirius that my grandparents flew around the world, it, it, it was incredibly empowering. And it led all of us who were you know, involved with XPRIZE to, to say, well, how do we do that again? <laughs> and, and, and I'm not really a rocket scientist, so I set my sights back on aviation and started really investigating electric propulsion because it has the potential to be clean and green. And um, it, it, it was harder, <laughs> it has been harder than I realized when I first saw and, and heard about, you know, when I, I think I saw the Sonex was the first electric aircraft prototype that I saw. And at that time I heard that, you know, batteries were getting better at 10% per year, increase in energy density. And I thought, oh, okay pretty soon batteries will be on par with gasoline and, and we'll be flying these and as trainers and pretty soon that we'll be using them for commercial purposes, but it's taken a lot longer than that. And we still have a long ways to go. Um, so I think that, that this, maybe any industry in the beginning is much harder, but as you mentioned, Tom, the, the, the exponential hockey stick curve, if you will, about electric propulsion and now electric vertical takeoff and landing or flying cars, as I like to call them, um, has really been getting a lot of press and a lot of companies have been um, delving into this, not just delving, but actually flying prototypes. And so for me, it, it really came to, let's see, uh, let me just back up and, and tell this as a story. Um, I got involved with the NASA Green Flight Challenge, and I had a little nonprofit that I started, and we, we offered the quietest aircraft prize. And during that NASA Green Flight Challenge, I got to know and work with the, the folks down at Embry-Riddle and the Eagle Flight Research Center and Dr. Pat Anderson with their Eco Eagle. And um, I asked Pat if, if we could demonstrate an electric aircraft, build and demonstrate an electric aircraft above the Grand Canyon um, and do noise testing. 
I had been asked by the National Park Service if we could do this because they have, you know, air tours in the in the national parks and yet a congressional mandate to protect the night skies and natural sounds in the national parks. So there's this sort of grandfathered <laughs> conflict. And and he said, yeah, that sounds like a great student program. And so we started building this e-spirit of St. Louis, all electric, built by students, sort of overseen by faculty. And boy, that has taken uh, three years longer than we anticipated. It it it's still in the works. We're we've we're just now finishing putting the, all the battery packs in and hope to be flying it soon. Um, so that's a a project that that we've had going for five or six years now. Um, but along that process, we realized we had all the right connections, the right technology, and the know-how to build a flying car. And Pat and I discussed. Should we just start a company and build a flying car? This is this is powerful, and so we 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 discussed it and recruited another brilliant um, guy from the electric aircraft industry, Eric Barch, and we formed a company, Vertigo Aero, and we started off by, you know, it, it basically designing this beautiful tilt wing flying car. And I call them flying cars because um, that's what the public sees and understands is as EV tall. Sure. And, and you, you know, aviation and the, uh, the technical um, geeks that we have <laughs> say, oh, it's not a flying car. It has nothing to do with cars. It doesn't drive on the road. <laughs> and or, 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 it's, or it's not a real airplane, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and they're correct. Aircraft. <laughs> yeah, all these things. But in aviation, we are absolutely guilty of jargonism and acronyms <laughs> and technicalities. And the world knows what a flying car is. It doesn't have to drive on the road. It 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 just looks like a car, except it flies. So there's my little explanation there. Anyway, we we the three of us formed a company called Vertigo Aero, designed this beautiful aircraft. We we had partners who understood how to do vertical flight and transition to horizontal flight and um, leapt out of the gate and subsequently failed to raise the, you know, hundred million bucks that we would need. And in the meantime, saw a hundred plus competitors in this marketplace, some of which had, had already gotten lots of funding. And we realized, Oh, this is, this is going to be really hard and take a lot longer. And what's our strength and skill set? And what do we really know? And so last year we pivoted to just producing and selling the integrated distributed electric propulsion systems, the, the nerves, the guts, the, the motors, the controllers, um, and battery systems that all these flying car companies, and there's now uh, approximately 150, seems to be a new one every day, companies competing in this urban air mobility market. It, so what happened as a result of that pivot is that now companies are coming to us and asking to use our proprietary analysis tools to evaluate their designs. And, um, and now we've got customers and we've got revenue and we've got, you know, suppliers and we're actually a going concern as a company with a long with long range prospects to to really enable the rest of the flying car industry. So it was difficult <laughs> and long, and we probably should have failed, just like X Prize and every other worthwhile endeavor that's happened in the last century. But but um, we're real now, and as this market has matured, and and the, the, the VCs, the venture capitalists, have all made it very clear to the rest of the, the you know, flying car companies out there that this is too long of a time horizon with too many unknowns and barriers on the regulatory side that, that they're not interested in throwing venture capital money at it. That when they've got apps that can mature and be sold in five years, the investment time horizon just doesn't fit. So, 
So it, it, I think it, what we're seeing now is a maturation of this marketplace and, and you'll see individuals involved um, and big aerospace companies and some automotive companies that are putting money in, but not the traditional uh, you know, business investment. You know, the only thing we can say for sure is that, uh, um, you know, the future isn't going to look exactly like what any of us uh, predict. Or if it does, then then some of someone's going to be uh, really, really rich. But uh, but let me ask you ask you this. I'm going to ask you to take a stand on a prediction and uh, and tell me this. Will I be able to fly uh, New York to Paris in, an, in a 100 percent electric aircraft before I can teleport there? Let's see if you're willing to commit to that. The pressure is on. Yes. Um, yeah, I'll say uh, I'll say yes for the electric aircraft. All right, then. that feels like a pretty safe assumption. Now, mostly uh, because I'm ignorant on teleportation. Well, I, I I don't think you're alone there. I think you know. Um, I think you know we all are to some degree or other. Um, but of course, pretty much tongue in cheek. But uh, then I would ask you the same same question. But uh, will I be able to do that flight? before I can travel back in time and watch your grandfather make his flight. So will electric yeah. aircraft come before teleportation and time travel? Well, technically, if you time uh, traveled back, you've already done it, depending <laughs> on what model of time travel you believe. You just blew my mind, oh. Tom. <laughs> you've been watching too much um, uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yes, you? I think so. Yes. Um, or the, Bill and the, Ted. I'm not sure which. Yeah, right. I. You know, I think it, this is the thing I, I get, once I started working with XPRIZE and these crazy rocket scientists, people said I was crazy, but these guys are really smart. And, and who would have known that our efforts to build private spaceflight industry would result in today's sort of thriving ecosystem of multiple launch companies like Blue Origin Virgin Galactic and SpaceX and a number of others, Strata Launch possibly, um, providing private launch services. It, it, that that absolutely changed the world. Even though people said, "Oh, you're crazy. You're from space," and <laughs> and, and and now I, you know, I can't help it. But I and maybe it's hereditary. But I'm I'm always looking for new efficiencies and thinking out of the box and trying to you know exert leverage on the future and and flying cars has been it right so people are again looking at me like you're crazy and for several different reasons but um it's it is and it isn't and it's crazy until it becomes real and then it's brilliant and 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 the people that are working on this are absolutely the larry pages of the world and um and and the Boeings and the Airbuses and and the auto manufacturers like Porsche and um, uh, it, it so it it is absolutely happening whether or not it happens quickly or not is a really good question um, and and you can and you can bifurcate that into will it happen in the U.S. or will it happen overseas. And part of the issue that we have in the U.S. is that we have this incredibly stringent sort of certification process that allows for aviation to be one of the safest modes of transportation um, on the planet. And, and yet we have the hunger to travel above the traffic jam in, in many countries around the world that don't have our infrastructure that may want to implement that first so countries um like dubai that um that are investing and 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 really pushing to build urban air mobility systems and will they be able to do that without um or with internal and internal equivalent of the faa um, certification so could it develop quicker overseas yes possibly but be really careful because if these things fall out of the sky, um, it's going to have a really negative effect. And they absolutely have to be safe and they have to be quiet in order to achieve scale. The, 
the multi-billion dollar market that's predicted in the next 10 years, um, a lot of things have to go right. And so I think that's where, you know, just tooting Vertigo Arrow's horn, where we have been really conservative, even though I'm a flying car guy, which is kind of crazy, we've been extremely conservative in really betting on the the IDEP systems, the distributed electric propulsion, and and using that, and then with the company building revenue and customers, we have Detroit Aircraft Corporation and Transcend, so we have these startups who are going to use our systems, and then we have established suppliers in Sayer Industries in St. Louis, they're tier one, tier two, tier three suppliers for the major aerospace companies to help with our supply chain, and and now um, major or billion dollar companies that are contracting with us to do evaluations on their designs and help with the engineering. Um, that in my mind is how you build this industry. And, 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 and it was hard won because we thought we would get our hundred million and build our aircraft and it would be the best one out there because we were smart, smarter than everyone else, and we knew how to do it. <laughs> so it's it, it, it was it was hard. It was a hard pivot for us, but it was the right one to go because it's conservative, and we can help all those other companies, and we'll become a successful company because of that. And it's it's exciting to be in that position now because I mean we talked to uh, who's the guy. Um, who founded uh, Icon, Kirk Hawkins. At AirVenture last year, we were talking to Kirk, and he said, well, I've got news for you. It's going to cost a billion dollars to certify your aircraft. And when you put a B right. <laughs> behind the billion, and, and he, he's, he was not joking. And, yeah, maybe you could do it cheaper, so maybe it's a half a billion. That's a huge amount of money. Where are you going to get that? And what are the guarantees for the investors? That's a pretty hard sell. Sure. Well, as we've uh, as we've established, you know, none of us knows exactly what the future holds. But uh, but uh, in the spirit of, of making predictions, um, I'm going to make uh, two as we as we wrap up this uh, kind of extended episode here of the show. The first prediction is that uh, that the future of aviation is going to be nothing but interesting and exciting. That's a real safe one. And part two of that, uh, Eric, is that you're going to be up to your neck in it. You're going to be right in the middle of all of this stuff around urban air mobility. And uh, and as always, it'll be uh, it'll be a pleasure to stay connected and uh, and to watch all that stuff play out. You know, it is the most exciting time in aviation for many reasons. And I'll just, um, uh, if you'll let me do a shameless plug for the Lindbergh Foundation, we have a program called the Lindbergh Innovation Forum, and we're hosting uh, leading edge talks by uh, visionaries in our industry at Aero Friedrichshafen on April 11th. If you're at Aero in Germany, please come join us. And then our next one is at AirVenture. And um, I forget the exact date, but um, we will have leading edge speakers again uh, from uh, we've had, um, you know, sort of the uh, supersonic flight, urban air mobility, electric and EV tall and and other leading edge additive manufacturing, et cetera. So if you want to learn more about the leading edge of aviation and why it's so exciting, come and visit us at our innovation forums, which will be in the innovation tent i believe at AirVenture this summer uh, there will be a, a big focus on that sort of thing uh, across the board this coming year so we're we're looking forward to that so so eric we've gone uh, we've gone a bit long but as always the time has uh, has flown by pardon the pun or or don't um it's been a real pleasure having you i can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day to come and and join us uh when we post this episode uh on our uh, blog site where the uh the episodes originally live inspiredida.org uh, we'll make sure we have links to uh vertigo.aero and that's v-e-r-d-e-g-o dot arrow uh the Lindbergh foundation vertigoarrow.com oh vertigoarrow.com so you're Correct. saying i'm wrong 
Well, this well, is awkward. Yeah, we, we might have that one too. I can't remember, but it's vertigoarrow.com. So we'll have the right link uh, posted uh, posted out there. And if you want to try the wrong one, proceed at your own risk. Who knows what's out there on the internet? Uh, and uh, and Eric, I'd love to uh, to share a link to Lindbergh Gallery as well, so people can see some of the artwork you've done over the years, because that yeah, is. Eric. Uh, Eric Lindbergh.com, uh, Eric with a K, Lindbergh with the useless dangling H on the end. <laughs> um, and, and you can link to all of it. Um, and Lindbergh Foundation is Lindbergh.arrow, I believe. Okay. Well, we'll we'll uh, we'll make sure we get it right. So between my my babbling and what goes on the web, somewhere there will be an injection of quality into this process. I promise you that. Oh. So. Well, you know, your browser says type in a URL, and so I'm going to type in halbryant.com. <laughs> I have no idea what's going to happen right now, but uh, I, I wish you the uh, I wish you the best of luck, and I hope your computer is well protected. <laughs> That's all I can say. It's 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 parked free, courtesy of GoDaddy. Someone owns it. You should buy it. I, sh I should. <laughs> I, I, now I have a mission in my life. Finally, finally, some direction after fifty years. All right, special deal for you. Yes. Two ninety nine. <laughs> All right, Eric. Well, thank you so much again, and thanks as always to everybody out there listening. Thanks to our sponsors, GE Aviation. Thanks to those of you who uh, who keep giving us the the great ratings over on iTunes and uh, Google Play and Stitcher and all those other places. Um, thanks to anyone out there who's uh, listening on their Alexa device. And if you don't know, you can do that. You just walk into the room, say Alexa, play the green dot, and uh, and you'll get to hear our voices uh, through your smart speakers of the future. Um, keep that feedback coming. As I said, you can always find our episodes at inspire.ea.org. You can email us at uh, feedback at ea.org. Um, you can catch EAA on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at, at uh, thosesites.com slash EAA. And uh, keep that coming in. And with all of that said uh, and our ongoing thanks, we look forward to catching up to you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot. <laughs>